From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We'll get the latest on COVID-19 from a pulmonary and critical care physician, from vaccines to new strains. Then the pandemic brought air travel to a trickle. So how has that affected DIA and the major construction projects underway? Believe it or not, even in a pandemic and even when traffic is down, every gate that we're building is already claimed by a carrier, which is phenomenal. And it speaks to the strength of this market. Plus, the pandemic's effects are unequal even for student-athletes. You have the money or the access, you're going to have more of a chance to be recruited because you're having more practices. A lot of kids don't have that opportunity because of COVID. I'm freaking out a little bit. A high school swimmer on how she's coping with mental health and missed opportunities. During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on. Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. About 365,000 people in Colorado have received a first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Just over 80,000 have received their second dose. As more people across the country are vaccinated, there are new questions about the new strains of COVID-19 and the vaccine's effectiveness with them. Also questions about what it means to be fully vaccinated for an individual and for the people they interact with. We're joined by Dr. Anuj Mehta, a pulmonologist and critical care physician at Denver Health and National Jewish Health. He's also served a key role in the state's medical advisory group on the vaccine. Dr. Mehta, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. As vaccines have ramped up, albeit slowly, across the nation, so have concerns about new strains of the virus. Tell us about those. Yeah, so new strains of any virus um, are normal. So we expect viruses to mutate over time. And the coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, is doing kind of that same thing. There have been multiple strains identified. The most, uh, the one that's been in the media the most is a UK variant, but there's one in South Africa. Um, there's actually one identified in California and then Brazil, and new ones are popping up all the time. And they obviously raise some concern about vaccine efficacy. Um, and we're learning more about it every day. Um, so even last week, there were three new papers that were uh, uh, put up on the internet by uh, researchers from around the world that looked at how the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine actually work on the different variants that we've seen. And what they find? So right now, what it looks like is that the UK variant seems to be very susceptible to uh, the antibodies produced by the both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. Um, and the way they tested is they took blood from people who had been fully vaccinated, so received both doses, and they introduced the new variant and saw if the antibodies would actually bind to the virus, which is kind of how it works in our body. Um, but they did this in test tubes. And it looks like the UK vi- uh, variant um, looks pretty susceptible to the vaccine, should have very good efficacy, and Moderna actually released a statement about that today. The South Africa variant does look like the vaccines may be slightly less efficacious um, compared to what we were seeing in the clinical trials. But a really key reminder 
is that both the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccines had 95% efficacy, which is essentially unheard of in vaccines. I mean, that is fantastic efficacy. So even if the vaccine is 10%, even maybe 15, 20% less effective on say the South Africa variant or the Brazil variant, that's still super high efficacy of 70, 75%. The threshold to get an emergency use authorization was actually 50%. Um, so that's still really good. Um, but we need to continue to learn more. And that's why it's really important that we uh, ramp up our vaccine efforts across the country and especially here in Colorado. That sounds encouraging. How easily do you expect that the new vaccines will adapt to work on those variants? Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we keep on thinking about mRNA technology. That's the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines is kind of brand new. But really, it's been built on 20 years of past technology utilizing RNA and one of the great things about these platforms is that they are, um, and I'm putting this in quotes, relatively easily. I mean, anything involving these vaccines is difficult, but they're relatively easily adapted, um, adapted to kind of new variants. We could reprogram the RNA to um, encode a slightly different version of the spike protein. And that's kind of what the mRNA does. It gives us the instructions to make a single protein to drive our immune response, does not give you COVID, does not give you coronavirus. So these um, vaccines could be readily adapted for that. And there's already been um, some reports about plans that maybe we would need to refine it in the future. The one question, though, is how long the approvals process would take for that. And the FDA would have to um, kind of give, give some new guidelines on what would be necessary to give approval to kind of a slightly modified vaccine. Moving on to, I mean, these vaccines, they require two doses. Last mm -hmm. week, Governor Polis decided to tell providers to use the second doses that they had of the vaccines as first doses. He said he was confident that more doses would be coming for to be used for people waiting for those second doses. Some states have even delayed second vaccines because they have a limited supply. Are you confident mm -hmm. that there will be enough supply to meet the state's needs for those second doses? Yeah, so I think there's two questions there. One is the question about utilizing all we have now for first doses. Um, and I think the CDC director, the new CDC director, um, announced over the weekend that they were trying to assess the manufacturing capabilities right now. I think Governor Polis is in contact with the uh, federal authorities, HHS and CDC, as are the state public health officials. And they know the real details of what we should expect from a manufacturing capability. So I think that, you know, if they have confidence, I have confidence that we should have enough. Um, the second question you asked or was implied was this idea of delaying the second dose. Um, and I don't think we have data on this right now. This is a hotly debated topic, and there are really smart people on both sides of the argument about delaying the second dose. My personal opinion, um, and that of a lot of others, is that right now our best data is that both the Pfizer and the um, Moderna vaccine are two doses, 21 and 28 days apart, respectively. That's what the emergency use authorization from the FDA states, and that's based on the clinical trials. And we really don't know how long the immunity from a single dose would last. We know that a single dose can provide some immunity for, say, the Pfizer vaccine about three weeks out. But we don't know how long that's going to last, and we don't know how robust that's going to be. And we also don't know how well that's going to work on some of the variants. And so I think that the two-dose strategy makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there's a lot of things we can do um, in, in, in a couple of weeks. Say we don't have enough. Um, for first and second doses, we can then focus on second doses potentially and delay first doses until manufacturing really ramps up. Because right now, we're in the phase of protecting the highest risk 
healthcare workers and first responders, and the people at highest risk for death. Those are the individuals over the age of 70. And so if we can get all of those people vaccinated, both with the first and second dose, then we can start moving on very efficiently to other groups as our manufacturing capabilities expand. And for people who have received both doses, then there are always the question of just what does it mean to be fully vaccinated? Do you yeah. believe that it's possible that people who are fully vaccinated can still spread it to others, even though they're protected from serious illness? Yeah. So, um, and I have received both doses of the Pfizer vaccine um, and I was uh, through Denver Health and they ramped it out to their healthcare workers really efficiently. I had minimal side effects and felt great afterwards. So I'm very excited to have both doses. Um, so we do know that a very small percentage of people that get vaccinated can still get COVID. Um, and that's true of any vaccine. Nothing is 100% effective. Um, what we also know is that the clinical trials tested for people getting sick with COVID, meaning they had symptoms. We know a lot less about asymptomatic transmission. For both vaccines, we have some early data suggesting that the vaccines should reduce asymptomatic transmission. That means if you get vaccinated, you uh, it's unlikely that you can pass it on to somebody else. But we don't know that for sure. And that's why it's really important to keep doing all of our core public health measures. And as the new variants become more dominant, you know, it continues to be really important to um, do our public health measures, wearing a mask, socially distancing, interacting with your own household. And that's why even when I walk my dog, I'm wearing a mask, um, even though I've had both doses. And I, even when I'm talking to my neighbors, I'm wearing a mask. I mean, I know that there are a lot of grandparents out there waiting to hug their grandchildren. So you're saying, tell me about that. Is it safe to see grandchildren without wearing a mask? Um, definitely not without wearing a mask. I think right now we just don't know enough. And, and right, grandparents, assuming that they're older and they're younger grandparents, so I don't want to assume anything, but assuming the older grandparents, right, they're at the highest risk for um, dying. So hugging them now, it could potentially put hugging them at six months at risk, um, especially if you have a lot of other comorbidities. So I think the best advice right now is if we really stick to our core public health measures, the vaccines will become in greater supply, and that's really the issue right now is supply, we will improve, improve the manufacturing capabilities and our distribution capabilities. And there's a, there's a very clear future that I see where grandparents, my own um, father wants to see my, my daughters. Um, he lives in New Jersey and I told him, I was like, you can't travel yet, even when you're vaccinated, you can't travel yet, you can't see us yet, um, but soon. And I think that waiting will ensure that when it happens, it's healthy and safe. So the goal is to have less COVID circulating in the community then. Briefly, exactly. you've worked on equity issues with the vaccines, making sure mm -hmm. that those in low income and diverse communities can easily access the vaccine as well as others. And those groups have been disproportionately hit by the virus. But we know now that 75 percent of those who have been vaccinated are white, while just 3.5 percent are Latino and 1.2 percent are black. What's going wrong here? So I think one thing is that we also know that the healthcare workers um, tend to have a larger percentage of uh, white individuals. So that could be reflective of the healthcare worker um, makeup. But also we know that there's um, more hesitancy amongst uh, communities of color. And so they may be delayed uptake. The bigger question is access, though. And I think that's the actionable item is how can we improve access to communities of color? And I know the governor's office has pledged to um, uh, to pledge to really focus on communities of color, especially where there's higher spread. Denver Health as well, through its partnership with Denver Public All right. Health. We're going um, to have to wrap up that. here, and I'm so sorry to cut you off. But Dr. Anuj no Mehta, thank you so much for being here. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
stay at home is the message we've heard constantly during the pandemic. But passengers at Denver International Airport show just how many people are flouting that advice. Despite the abysmal 2020 for DIA, numbers have rebounded with traffic through Denver above the national average. Meanwhile, a terminal overhaul continues. So does gate expansion. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with airport COO Chris McLaughlin. Chris, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It strikes me that you're in a funny position. I mean, the better the airport does, the worse pandemic outcomes could be, you know, with more people moving about. Uh, Reflect on that tension for me. Yeah, no, I mean, literally, that's something that I think about every single day, right? I mean, we spend uh, a good part of our day doing two things. One, ensuring that our airport is as safe as it can be through this pandemic. And then two, communicating to the public that it is safe. And in fact, we do believe that it's safe. So we know that people have to fly. It's not just about people wanting to fly. One of the stories that I have reflected on a lot over this 10 months or so is a customer who had an obligation for health reasons to travel regularly to Houston, Texas. This individual ended up uh, writing to us and and thanking us for doing um, certain things, and maybe we'll talk about some of those things later, that allowed her to feel safe taking a trip that she had to take, not one that she wanted to. It wasn't to go to an amusement park or a vacation. It was something that was literally, in her case, life or death. No doubt, of course, there are also leisure travelers who are making those decisions for themselves. So I noted from the state's spreadsheet, there are two active outbreaks at the airport. None of them reported among passengers. Uh, So more than 50 cases at United Ramp Services, no deaths. 86 cases at a maintenance facility, no deaths there either. Uh, Back in November, I'll say that a TSA agent died after contracting COVID-19. But let's do talk about just a few of the safety measures you're putting in place for passengers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and first, let me just, I don't want to allow the, the TSA officer to go without being mentioned. We care deeply about our community and and that hit us hard and, and it really helped us to remember, again, how tricky the balance is. And from an employee perspective, I'll answer and then I'll give some ideas about customers as well. But from an employee perspective, immediately we began to do things like putting sanitizer everywhere, not just hand sanitizer, but also wipes so that individuals driving trucks could wipe down steering wheels and gear shifters and whatever they have to do. We removed tables and chairs from break rooms. It would be easy to say, well, just close the break rooms altogether. But remember, early in the pandemic, we were hit almost immediately with two back-to-back snowstorms. And when we have snowstorms, we have to have people driving plow trucks and those people uh, have to bring lunches and they have to use restrooms and they have to do all those things and they have to do it over the course of you know 12 hours or more so we couldn't just close facilities and quote unquote work from home uh, scheduling people in a, in a way that would allow pods if you will of people to stay separate from each other you know most of our employees regularly park in a remote parking lot and then bus into the airport We closed that remote parking lot, and because we had fewer travelers, we allowed those employees, in fact, continue to allow those employees to park in one of our economy lots where they can just simply walk to the building. As opposed to being all lumped in a bus or something like that or on a train. And yet those outbreaks at ramp services and the maintenance facility, I mean, those those aren't small. Well, keep in mind a couple of things. First of all, I, I certainly will not, uh, uh, any case is one case too many. 
but you have just mentioned two of the largest work groups at the airport. So a ramp service work group for an airline is generally their largest work group. I can't tell you exactly how many uh, rampers United has, but it's counted in the thousands. And same on our end in the in the maintenance center, it is our single largest work group. And some of them have been identified at different periods of time. And in some cases, they're being identified because of a proactive step that we've taken where we uh, test employees to ensure that they are, in fact, uh, healthy. And through that process, we have identified some asymptomatic individuals that otherwise would have continued to come to work unnoticed. Let's talk about the passenger experience. And maybe I could just reflect on what my own concerns would be. I I, I don't think I'm about to fly. I don't have the constitution <laughs> for that yet. Um, sure. But you know, And one of the pinch points, if you will, that concerns me the most, uh, besides the plane itself, is the train. Um, so I yeah. know that you can reserve slots on a train that doesn't have as many people, you can do that. But there are trains running without reservations. And and I wonder if that's a a potential vulnerability for people. Number one, passengers flying today out of Den, if you're flying out of the A concourse, which is carriers like Frontier, it's American, it's uh, Spirit, it's some international carriers, some others. But if you're flying out of the A concourse, United has some flights out of the A concourse, we really encourage you to take our A bridge security where you can walk directly at your pace to the A bridge without ever uh, being you know, on a train car. If you're on B or C, there's a couple reminders we would give. First, our most busy cars are always the cars closest to the escalators. If you'll just take a few more steps and walk toward the center of the platform, What seemed very busy on the ends, all of a sudden is much less busy toward the center. And then the final point that I would just make is this one. And and again, I'm not diminishing the passenger sentiment, but in terms of actual duration on a train car, the absolute longest time that someone will spend is five minutes and 56 seconds, which is well below the 15-minute threshold that the CDC has established for prolonged exposure. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about air travel, specifically through Colorado's largest airport, Denver International. Uh, Joining me is the COO, Chris McLaughlin. So 2020 will indeed be a low point for passenger traffic at DIA. In April, when there were no international flights, you hit a low of just over 2,000 passengers in a day. How did those doldrums, and I I know there's been some rebound, but how did that affect the airport's finances and and how much did you have to go into reserves for that? Well, look, those were were definitely dark times. I mean, I'm someone who was in the industry for 9-11 and I thought that those were tough times, but that April timeframe that you talk about was really tough. I think that, so uh, I'll tell the, you that DIA's the, head, Kim Day, said that you guys had about a year of operating capital on standby. Did you eat into that a lot? So candidly, I would say that the, the, uh, our operating capital was slightly more than a year. And we took uh, immediate steps to reduce our expenses. We also did receive some uh, CARES Act funding. And then fortunately, that dip didn't last as long as people projected. Now, Hmm. clearly we're not where we want to be, but we're higher than we thought. We were projecting that we would finish the year at roughly 40% of normal. In fact, we were around 50% of normal. And on top of that, we were able to cut our expenses about 4% more than we intended to. So you did indeed get some federal relief money. I know that you used that towards 
concessionaires helping them with rent, for instance. Some of that went to the airlines. Uh, Were there layoffs specifically from DIA, which I'll say is an enterprise, a city enterprise? And um, were there layoffs then in the ring outside of that uh, affecting the concessionaires and the airlines? Let me just say very emphatically that uh, when we went into this, our CEO, Kim, one of her first imperatives was to make sure we were taking care of our employees. And I'm really proud to say that we did not lay off a single employee as a result of COVID. Now, I think you're probably aware that every city and county employee in Denver has taken some furlough days uh, in 2020, and we'll take some more in 2021. In terms of the our partners, I can't speak in specifics, but I will tell you that Based on some of the funding that our partners received from the federal government, that minimized the number of furloughs and layoffs that they experienced. I can't give you specific numbers because I don't have them. Let's talk about the major construction projects that roll along despite the pandemic. I guess, first off, why press on with a gate expansion amidst all this uncertainty? Well, right. I mean, it's similar to your opening question about sort of the the paradox that we find ourselves in. On the one hand, do you build it now if traffic isn't here? On the other hand, let's hurry up and build it because we know traffic is going to come back. So the gates are a perfect example of that, where we planned to build gates some years ago. And frankly, we were building some of them on spec, believing that carriers would want them. Believe it or not, even in a pandemic and even when traffic is down, every gate that we're building is already claimed by a carrier, which is phenomenal. And it speaks to the strength of this market and it speaks to the carrier's commitment to DEN and our belief that we will quickly move into a recovery mode. Um, I'm not saying we're going to arrive overnight, but I think that we are poised to recover quickly, uh, potentially more quickly in DEN than in some other Uh, areas. And so as a result of that, we can't get caught flat-footed. Now, the other big project is the Great Hall, uh, the building with the iconic white tented roof. You are moving security up and out. How long before that is all set and doesn't look like a construction site anymore? Yeah. So look, the Great Hall is an important project for us. And um, the phase that's currently being worked on, which is the middle of the building, it's it's the, the part that has looked like a construction zone now for some time. And we anticipate that phase being complete in the fourth quarter of 2021, which will allow uh, increased ticket counter space, uh, baggage induction capability, and better movement through the building. And that will be done in the fourth quarter of 2021. The end of this year. We are approved for a second phase, which will allow us to move security, as you said, up and out from level five up to level six. We anticipate beginning that physical work this summer, which again will add a few new construction walls. And that work um, should be complete by the 2024 timeframe. 2024. And I imagine that the reduced passenger load has helped uh, any number of these projects roll along. Immensely. I mean, again, uh, it's the paradox we keep talking about is that I would love to see our facility full. And yet I'm grateful for a window of time that allows us to get some real meaningful work done in a way that would have been much more complicated if the buildings were full. Thank you so much for being with us, Chris. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for your time today. Chris McLaughlin is Chief Operating Officer at Denver International Airport. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner about pandemic travel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Democratic Representatives Diana DeGette and Jonah Goose will have a front-row seat to the historic second impeachment of former President Donald Trump, who faces a charge of incitement of insurrection. They were selected by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to be two of the nine impeachment managers, arguing the case against Trump in the Senate. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports it's not surprising that DeGette and Goose were tapped. Denver-area Democrat Diana DeGette says she got the call asking her to be an impeachment manager about 30 minutes before Speaker Pelosi made the announcement. She says she was deeply honored to be chosen alongside fellow Coloradan Joe Neguse. I always tell people we're punching way above our weight in little Colorado. It's not the first time DeGette, who has served in the House since 1997, has been tapped by Pelosi for a high-profile impeachment job. I hereby appoint the Honorable Diane DeGette to act as Speaker Pro Temporary on this day. DeGette presided over the chamber the first time the House debated impeaching Trump. She'd gavel down members on both sides of the aisle when they were over time, or, more often, when tempers flared. The House will come to order. The House will come to order. Before coming to Congress, she was a lawyer with 15 years of trial practice. In Congress, she chairs a powerful oversight subcommittee. I think uh, being able to question those witnesses and bring out the facts has really continued since I've been in Congress. If DeGette is the longest-serving member selected, Neguse is the youngest to be selected. The Lafayette Democrat is considered a rising star in the caucus. The lawyer has been part of the Democratic leadership team since he entered two years ago. He sits on the Judiciary Committee, which has jurisdiction over impeachment of federal officials, and where members get a lot of experience questioning high-profile witnesses, from Robert Mueller to Mark Zuckerberg. The opportunity, to, rather, to hone your cross-examination skills during those proceedings, I think, is important. And he comes to this role after helping lead the fight against the Electoral College objections on January 6th. Vague claims of fraud. No substance. No evidence. No facts. That was uh, an assignment that I took very seriously, uh, recognizing that it was going to be a very solemn day. Of course, uh, I did not realize uh, just how historic a day January 6th would ultimately uh, culminate in being. They broke the glass. Everybody stay down. Get down. Like DeGette, he was in the House chamber when a pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol, trying to stop the Electoral College count that would certify Joe Biden the winner of the election. What makes this case so unique is that every juror was a witness, every juror was a victim. Given what senators experienced that day, Neguse thinks they'll have a very visceral reaction to the evidence the managers present. But living through it doesn't mean Republicans agree impeachment is the right road to travel. Some have criticized the rush to impeachment or argued that it's unconstitutional to impeach a former president. To get counters, what message would it send to Trump and others if Congress doesn't take this step? You can just run amok in your last month as president. You can commit as many high crimes and misdemeanors as you want. But because you've left office, Congress can't do anything about it. That's that's not the right signal. This will mark DeGette's third impeachment trial during her congressional career, and she hopes her last. Impeachment managers have been meeting daily for pre-trial prep. DeGette says Pelosi told her she chose this group because they're all team players. Neguse adds he's gotten advice from the last group of impeachment managers, including the only other Coloradan to serve in that role, Representative Jason Crow. Uh, you know, various lessons learned, what went right, what went wrong. 
uh, and uh, what they gleaned from their experience. It's also his family's experience that drives him. As the son of Eritrean immigrants, he says he was raised to not take for granted the freedoms in the United States. It's something he wants to impart to his daughter. And I can think of no better way, perhaps, uh, to do that than to serve my country in this capacity as a manager uh, with the hope that we can uh, vindicate the Constitution and, uh, and continue with uh, this, this incredible form of government that uh, uh, has endured for the better part of the last 232 years. Both Nagus and Deget will get that chance with 100 senators and the nation watching. I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. And Caitlin joins us now to talk more about what we can expect. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Avery. So we just heard about the role some of our House members will play in the impeachment trial. What about Colorado senators? What do we know about what they're thinking? Let's start with Democrat Michael Bennett. Well, in a statement, uh, Michael Bennett said former President Trump's incitement of a riot against the U.S. Capitol was, quote, an egregious abuse of power. He's saying going forward, it's about defending the Constitution and reaffirming the rule of law. Now, Ben has been clear since the storming of the Capitol that there needs to be justice and accountability for those responsible, including Trump. And at one point, he said he'd prefer using the 25th Amendment to remove Trump while he was still in office, but that didn't happen. And Colorado's newest Senator John Hickenlooper, what has he said? Well, he said that it gives him no pleasure to impeach a president. And, you know, President Trump should have resigned and spared the country this, quote, painful exercise. He says this is the legislative branch of government doing its job, providing a check and balance to abuses by the executive branch. You know, no person, including a president, is above the law. And he thinks Trump needs to be held accountable for his part in the assault on the Capitol. Bennett knows what he's getting into at this trial. Do you think Hickenlooper is ready? (laughs) Yes. Um, I think the question is, will he like it? (laughs) That I'm not sure about. (laughs) You know, I remember talking to him before he took office, you know, talking about priorities and what he was expecting on the job. He was telling me, you know, he's not a fan of long meetings. And I think this is something we can all kind of relate to. And that was in the context of these long committee meetings that can sometimes happen um, in Congress. And this trial will be a very long meeting. You know, remember some of the rules, you know, all senators need to be in the chamber, no phones, only drinking water or milk. I mean, these are the rules before the pandemic. So we'll have to see what changes there might be for the pandemic. Have you heard any concerns about doing this early in the Biden presidency and early in the new Congress that is going to slow down the other work they want to do? You know, yes, you know, there are some concerns. Even President Joe Biden alluded to that. But with an agreement now in place on the schedule, I think that's, you know, that's lessened a bit. Both legal teams will have two weeks to prepare, you know, submit pre-trial briefs, you know, answer pre-trial briefs. Most people are looking at February 9th, you know, the due date for the House's pre-trial rebuttal brief as the date the trial will actually start. So it gives the Senate two weeks to work on trying to confirm members of Biden's cabinet. And frankly, they also still need to work out an operating resolution for the Senate. It's 50-50, but with the vice president, Democrats have the majority. But currently, Republicans are controlling the committees because they haven't reached this agreement. And there are pressing issues facing the country, like additional measures to combat the pandemic. The House would like to pass something soon, and I think you can expect that in the next couple of weeks. And Hickenlooper is part of this bipartisan Senate group teaming up with the House Problem Solvers Caucus. And they met virtually with members of the Biden administration on Sunday. And I think they're looking for some common ground on pandemic relief. You know, just as a reminder, the federal unemployment benefit ends March 14th. 
And, um, you know, so I think Bennett was on Colorado Matters earlier this month, and he kind of summed it up pr- pretty well. They'll have to walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were in Congress for Trump's first impeachment trial. That was almost exactly a year ago. What did you learn from that process that applies to this one? <laughs> um, that's a good question, Avery. I'm not really sure, to be honest. I think one thing you can expect is a more heightened security posture. But um, Representative Joe Nadu said it, you know, no two trials are the same. And I think this pandemic does change things. We're expecting this to be a shorter trial than the last one. Um, the last one was about 21 days and only one article of impeachment, incitement to insurrection versus two. And while there is a timeline, there are a lot of things we still don't know, you know, details. Who will preside? Will witnesses be called? So we're still waiting a lot on uh, we're still waiting a lot on the details of how this trial will actually run. Lynn, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you, Avery. Caitlin Kim is CPR's reporter in Washington, D.C. Up next, life is not on hold for anyone during the pandemic, and that can especially affect teenagers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As coronavirus continues to spread, the vaccine is rolling out across the state, and CPR News has what you need to know. You'll find complete coverage online, including our always up-to-date guide to different phases of vaccine distribution statewide and county-by-county help on how to make appointments. Just go to CPR.org slash coronavirus. Teen years are full of milestones and opportunities that shape their options beyond high school for employment or college. The pandemic has disrupted those. Youth have had to adapt and cope with disappointment. This Thursday, CPR and Call to Mind from American Public Media are hosting a free virtual event. We're talking with teens and youth mental health experts about what they're missing and solutions that they've found to care for their mental health. We're sharing the three teen panelist stories on Colorado Matters this week leading up to the event. First up is Kate Jordan-Little. She's a high school sophomore from Denver, and she plays a lot of sports. Golf, gymnastics, cross-country, and she's passionate about one sport above all the rest. I think that swimming is the closest thing in the world to flying. And so you just, as soon as you dive in, the cold water like rushes through your hands and through your body. And it's really calming. It's a great coping mechanism. It's just the best sport in the whole wide world. And it's been your dream to compete in swimming in college for a long time now. Yeah, I always wanted to be an Olympian. But as I got older, I had a couple of injuries. So I was like, you know, let's just shoot for the moon, but land among the stars. And so I really want to hopefully swim D1 or D2 in college. And we'll see what happens. But it's going to put the effort in now. Tell me what swimming has looked like for you since the pandemic started. It's been really, really weird. You would think that swimming is like the perfect social distancing sport. And it kind of is. But we didn't have practices until early June. So everyone gets their own lane and you get in at like a certain time and you have to wear your mask until you get literally in the water and then you can take it off and then you swim. And so that's been a little weird. Our practices have also been a lot shorter. So I'm usually two, two and a half, three hour practices. And now we're only getting 90 minutes. That's hard. And also our season has been shortened. So our season is seven weeks long, literally seven weeks long. So ah, that's I'm worried about taper and 
just trying to get everything organized. Oh, and meets. There have been no meets. Everything's virtual. Basically, it's just a time trial. So you swim in your lane by yourself, which is going to be hard to push yourself, but you really have to race the clock for that one. And now you're getting to swim five days a week, but (laughs) that was really recent. That's just this week. Before this week, how often were you getting to swim? One practice a week. So kind of sad. And that wasn't true for everybody you're competing against, right? Yeah. So like we train at Thomas Jefferson High School and the high school has been closed and we've been training at Manual High School and the high school is closed. And we're also training at like YMCA's. Those are closed. So we've been training outdoor all season. So the problem is there's a couple of other teams that are also training at the JCC. So we have really short practice times and not a ton of them. But there are some other clubs. They practice at the University of Denver. So they have this amazing 50 meter pool and they can split that up into two sections and have two practices running at the same time. One of my best friends is on their elite group and she's been training almost every day. So it's just the more resources your team has or the more funding that your program has, the more practice you get, which is kind of sad. So you're a sophomore this year. Next year is your recruitment year. How do you feel like the pandemic has affected that? Well, I definitely think that it's harder to stay in shape and harder to get in shape for swimming. It takes like hardcore practices to be at like your tip top. But I don't know. It's I'm freaking out a little bit. I don't really know how everything's going to look next year. I'm really hoping with the vaccine that things will go back to as normal as they can. Um, I'm hoping by summer, maybe we'll be able to have in-person meets, but we'll see. Are you worried that some of the unevenness that you're seeing in the ways that athletes are getting to practice or compete are going to show up in the recruitment year too? Yeah, definitely. Like if you have the money or the access, you're going to have more of a chance to be recruited because you're training more, you're having more practices. And a lot of kids don't have that opportunity because of COVID. Tell me about the mental health aspect of just not knowing how many practices you're going to get or what kind of preparation you're going to have going into that big year. Okay, so this is a big one. Um, It's really hard trying to psych yourself up and get your head in the game when everything is constantly up in the air. Everything is like, oh, your season's going to get canceled. Oh, it's starting in February. Oh, it's starting next week. Oh, it's starting tomorrow. It's it's just been really hard. <laughs> and it's for like the mental health of it. I have a lot of anxiety and a lot of performance anxiety. So it's kind of been like a weight lifted off of my shoulders for these past couple of months to not have the pressure of a big meet coming up. And Right now, that pressure is kind of back on, and I'm like, I have to do this in seven weeks now. I don't have four months. I have seven weeks. So That's big. Yeah. And that's a lot to juggle. So tell me in general, how has mental health been during this pandemic? We've been doing this for almost a year now. That's crazy to think about. There have definitely been a lot of ups and downs, and I think that this... 2020 and kind of 2021 too has just been like a year of loss just like in many perspectives for my family like my grandfather died and my dive coach died and so it's just been it's a lot so I think that my mental health definitely took a toll I'm a very social butterfly kind of person but I'm also very introverted so I have been loving and hating quarantine I haven't seen my friends in a really long time and like we're a very 
family-oriented kind of household, and it's just hard. Like, I haven't seen my cousins in a long time. I haven't seen my best friends. I, heck, I haven't even really seen my neighbors, but my mental health, I think, has gotten stronger throughout this whole thing. Like, if you can get through this, you can get through anything. Like, oh, a 50 free, no big deal, Kate. You got through, like, seven weeks of not talking or seeing any of your friends. I think I know how to cope a lot better with the stress and anxiety of swimming. Like, I took that for granted so much. And then as soon as it gets taken away, you're like, wow, that's something I love. That's something I need in my life. I love that you're seeing ways that you've built your strength during this time. Tell me about the tools that you've developed that have helped you build that grit and get through the mental health stress of all this. I like the word grit. Building up that grit and that resilience has really helped. So I started journaling and I love it. I've also been trying to exercise a lot more, but not to the point of exhaustion. Like exercise is coming from a place of self-love and not self-hate. And self-hate is where like my exercise and eating habits were coming from before. Spending time with my family, going outside, seeing the light of day, not just being on my phone for 45 hours a day. I mean, <laughs> I've also tried to be very mindful about my like my mind and body. So if I see myself in the mirror and I'm like, oh, you have a huge pimple on your face. Like, oh, you're so ugly. I'm like... No, that pimple is beautiful. You are beautiful. You are a strong, amazing person. You are growing up, and that's a part of growing up. Everyone deals with this. And just trying trying to really be positive. I love how intentional each of those are. Tell me about how it's been to stay connected with your friends during all of this. Because I know you said you're not seeing them in person. Are you keeping up with them online? So I deleted Snapchat because that was my New Year's resolution. And that is seriously how my generation communicates so I don't know if I'm being left out of stuff but I'm also not seeing it so I don't feel bad I guess Um, we definitely have been doing a lot of FaceTimes a couple of texts here and there and I think that school has really helped like having a constant schedule every single day I can like reach out to my friends and be like hey what did you get for xyz or abc and they're like oh yeah and then you start chatting and I don't know it's really hard but I do feel like social media kind of is a blessing throughout COVID because like you can see what your friends are up to like instagramming and texting and just being like Hey, how are you doing? Mental health check. How's everybody doing? Why did you decide to delete Snapchat? I just think that it's it's very negative for me. Like I'm always looking at Snap Map and seeing who's hanging out without me. Or it's also because I was spending a lot of time on that time that I could be spending walking my dog or doing some yoga or taking a nap. And I think that Snapchat and social media has just kind of been a a distraction and an unhealthy coping skill for me. Like if something's wrong, I'll go look at Instagram reels for like five hours straight. You'll be fine. And then you don't get anything done. So it's more like for productivity and not seeing or feeling left out. It's such a double-edged thing. 
for Instagram, you're also working on creating your own resources for mental health on Instagram, though. So tell me about the two sides of social media, that there's a way to spend too much time on it, but you've also found some of the mental health resources. They're really helpful, right? Yeah, there's a bunch of pages that have like really motivational quotes or just like cool coping strategies or like little tips and tricks on what to do when you're feeling sad and just like being like, wow, this is an amazing way to spread resources. And for kids who don't maybe have access to something like that right now, they can literally go on Instagram. And there are people that are sharing stuff like, you are important. Yes, you reading this, you are important. I really like that. Shifting gears a little bit, tell me about what it's been like to talk with adults in your life about your mental health during the pandemic. Okay. Well, my parents are my best friends. My sister is my best friend. So all the barriers kind of came down and like there were barriers up. Like I didn't want to tell my mom about everything that was going on, like how I was stressing with school. But now I'm like, I cannot do this. Can you please help me? And my parents are always just like, yes. I definitely think that advocating for yourself, like communicating with your teachers even and saying, hey, I need time on an assignment. Yeah. What do you feel like, maybe not the adults that you're closest with, or maybe the adults that you're closest with, but when people are talking about teen mental health during the pandemic, what do you feel like folks are missing? Um, how hard it is to be a teenager. Our high school experience is completely different from what my parents had. Like, the expectations, I think, have increased. Like, now you have to be involved in 17 athletic things and 17 clubs and starting your own company and just being this extraordinary student to get into college. And I think that they also don't really understand like the external pressures um, and internal pressures. Like right now, like we are still having the exact same workload and everything's online. And I mean, everything happens. Like my computer will die during class or my dog will be barking and it's really hard to focus or my dog will pee on the floor and I have to go clean it up. And I mean, some kids are having to take care of their younger siblings and make sure that they're on like on time for their classes or like getting them breakfast or like sometimes parents aren't working for home or maybe they don't even have like the computers, so they have to share it. I wish that like one day all the adults in the world could just switch place and be a teenager like they are in the 21st century. And it's not enough for people to just project what their experience was onto your life and assume yeah. it was the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's Kate Jordan-Little. She's one of the teen panelists for the virtual event that I'll be hosting this Thursday at 4. Life's not on hold teens navigate missed milestones. CPR is co-producing the event with Call to Mind, an American public media initiative. We'll be sharing mental health solutions as we talk with two other teens, as well as a school social worker and an advocate for youth mental health who wrote the book that inspired the movie Mean Girls. You are also an important part of the discussion. You'll be able to ask the panelists questions during the live Q&A. Register for free at CPR.org. Finally today, new music from the Denver synth pop act Retrofet. This band has a reputation for high-spirited live shows, so the pandemic has slowed them down some. But 2020 still had its highlights. They were able to pull off a couple of live gigs, including at a drive-in. Plus, they helped raise thousands of dollars for music mentoring program Youth on Record. 
More free time also allowed the four members of Retrofet to record their first full-length album, set to be released this year. A taste here of their futuristic pop sound, a hip new track about the anxieties of social media inspired by member Sean Colton's COVID doom scrolling. This is photogenic. Denver synth-pop band Retrofet with their new track, Photogenic. They're preparing to release their first full-length record this year. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to the team that brings this show to air. Carl Bielek. Ali Butler. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Alexandra McMahon. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lil. This is CPR News. Hello.